Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. What happens when the doors are opened and we are told once again that we may leave, go out and live our lives, you know, with some precautions, with proper precautions. We'll understand what needs to be done. We don't need to be uh, to be babysat through this thing. I don't think most of us will understand what, what one needs to do. But will we go out? Will we actually venture forth? Earlier today on Twitter, I mentioned that years ago, one of my dogs had a litter of six puppies, and when they were about six weeks old, I put them all in a hockey bag, and I took them outside. Mom was watching me very carefully. She sort of trotted alongside, put the hockey bag down in the sun, opened up the flap, and little heads popped out to take a look to see what was going on. This was brand new. They'd never been outside before. And instead of uh, heading out to explore the wild blue whatever, all the little heads popped right back into the bag. They were not having any of this. So will that be us? Will we be the ones that open the front door and say, I don't think so, not yet. Dr. Frank Farley, psychologist at Temple University, psychology professor, the People's Professor, blog and psychology today, past president of the American Psychological Association, and as we like to point out, one of ours, he's from Alberta. Frank, thank you very much for taking the time, and what about it? What are we going to do? Will we see our shadows or not? Will we be like the puppies that said, I think I'll head right back into the bag, or will we say, thank God the door's open, I'm out of here? Some of us will be like the puppies, and some of us will bound out of the bag and into the world. Um, but it will be a world where we're confronting uncertainty on a 1 to 10 point scale of uncertainty. It's, it's very high. It's very close to 10. And um, this pandemic, you know, we keep hearing about a second wave, etc. And so there are going to be long-term consequences I think the consequences are going to increasingly be psychological as opposed to physical. But the risk takers among us uh, will be excited to get out there and to engage the world and um, to pursue their sort of active, adventurous lifestyle. And then uh, the uh, traditionally risk-averse people will uh, probably be happy staying where they are. You've talked to us about risk-takers before, and I know you study that phenomenon very carefully. So uh, I'm probably one of those people you would consider a risk-taker, just based on things I've done in my life. Um, and I'll be one of those people who will, understanding that I have to take precautions and, and, and be careful about what I do, I'll be one of those people who goes out the front door to see the world again and keep my distance from people. I'm being careful now when I go to the grocery store or a pharmacy or wherever. But what is it about the personality? What is it in the makeup of a person that turns them into a risk taker or identifies them as a risk taker? Yes. Well, people in broadcasting, by the way, you know, because it's a risky thing, you can get all sorts of, you know, phone calls coming in or whatever, and you have to deal with things in real time, and you're dealing with the changing world, not the static world so much. And so it, uh, it's a profession that often attracts uh, risk-taking people. You know, more mental risk-taking, but some physical risk-taking. Well, um, you know, risk-takers, <laughs> we've bottled them up right now. And uh, so they're just itching to get out. But it's just not the risk-takers we should be concerned about, of course. Charles Darwin, the great evolutionist, 
of course, said that survival depends on adapting to change. Mm-hmm. That was the essence of evolution, adapting to change, and it's been a driving force in our species, you know, forever. And so it really is being tested at this time. Is there something... I'm sorry. Is there something in the psychological makeup of a person who says, I'm going to take this risk? You know, there are people who jump out of airplanes. I wouldn't jump out of an airplane if it was standing on the ground, never mind in the air. But there are things that I will do and other people will do that differently. And, and, and so we do take risks. Is there something in the psychological makeup that identifies, you know, why you do this? Um, or, or am I getting way too deep here? No. There, there really are several levels of influence. One is genetics. There seems to be some genetic influence over risk-taking. A second uh, area of influence is your family. You know, uh, evil Knievel's son, Robbie, is just a big, as big a risk-taker as his father. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's family influence. There's genetic influence. And then there's a the kind of community effect and social effect. You know, I argue that some nations tend to tilt toward risk-taking more than other nations, and that the nations that tilt toward the risk-taking end of life tend to be nations with a high rate of immigration, of people who, who emigrate to that country, who leave the old world behind and go for a more adventurous life in a new That's world. That's very interesting. That's very interesting, yeah. yeah. It's like the people who threw the tea bags over the... The people who threw the tea bags into Boston Harbor got the whole thing started in the United States. When you're dealing with your your students and you're doing that in a virtual environment now, I don't know how you handle that. I don't know how that how the interplay goes with with students when you're dealing with them on a, in a virtual basis. But Frank, when you deal with the students, what are they most focused on? What's the younger generation focused on as far as? what they expect, what they want to do, and what they may be reluctant to do as far as this pandemic is concerned? Well, it's hard to discern. I've been uh, educating one class uh, this semester, which just ended uh, yesterday, um, of 95 kids um, being educated online all of a sudden, too. You know, we closed the university down, and suddenly all the kids had to go home. Mm -hmm. Dormitories were shut down and so on. So suddenly the whole idea of education was changed on a dime. Right. But uh, what I found is that uh, terrific resilience, um, many of them are finding it a kind of interesting challenge. It's, it's sort of different. Uh, of course, there's uncertainties, and uncertainty is a big source of human fear, and so there's some of that. But I've been impressed with the resilience, uh, the interest in the process and the phenomenon uh, of course, they're deeply concerned about the larger question beyond schooling of society. Where is our society being driven by this beast? This little beast that you can't see, you can't stomp on it with your foot, etc. It's a silent, it's, it's a grim reaper, an unseen grim reaper. And so they're wrestling with that idea. You know, they're young and the future lies ahead for them, and they, they're looking forward to a, a great life. And they're worried about the possible curtailment of that sure. and how it might totally distort normal living. And there are so many unknowns. And again, uncertainty and the unknown is a major source of human fear. 
And so, sure, they've got some of that, but I've been very impressed with their resilience, their adaptability. Charles Darwin would be happy on this front, and how they've adapted to it. They find that they can work together even though one kid is in one state and another one's in three states over, and yet they can work together on a project. And, of course, this is the technology generation, the likes of which we've never seen. Well, exactly, exactly, because they, they have the resources, they have the world's resources at their fingertips. Totally. Uh, when when we were growing up, we didn't have that. We had to go to the library no. physically and pull out a book. Oh, and, I've, I've uh, argued that if this pandemic had happened, you know, 20, I mean, 50 years ago, it would have been a much bigger disaster. But well, you know, it's interesting. It's helping us survive. Frank, it's interesting you bring that up. Somebody on Twitter earlier today uh, made mention of the fact that there was a pandemic in 1968-69, and that was the Woodstock era. And uh, there wasn't any reluctance of people to get out, the younger people, my generation in that case. Uh, we, we got out and we did things and we weren't interrupted by what was going on around us because we didn't have the kind of information overload that we're getting now. We didn't necessarily have it constantly delivered to us that this is the, this is the body count today or this is the illness count today or this is what's projected, uh, today. We, we didn't have that. We had to go and seek it out in order to find the information and, and we, we didn't generally go and do that because we had other things to do. We had a life to live. In the 60 seconds we have left, I wish I had more time. Frank, what, uh, for the person who, who is very worried now about just life and about what's happened and what's waiting for them, is there one thing, one thing they can do to just decompress? Focus on the things you can control and deal with those. Okay. You know, so your live- attitude is your destiny. Be positive. Have a positive outlook. We're going to get through this. You know, as Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. That's good good advice. Frank, thank you. Great talking to you as always. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Dr. Frank Farley, psychology professor at Temple University, the People's Professor blog on psychology today, and past president of the American Psychological Association. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.